Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I recently found a podcast. Honestly, this is one of the best resources out there because knowledge is power when it comes to money. So you need resources to help you make money, grow money, and keep money. This podcast helps you navigate investing, retirement, debt, savings, basically everything you need to know about personal finance. And it does it in a really quick way. Each episode is about 20 minutes or less. But anyway, the podcast that I'm talking about is called DIY Money. Do-it-yourself money, DIY money. These guys take a fun it's a real playful and entertaining approach to all things money. And they know what they're talking about. I've known these guys for a decade. They're experts at what they do. This is what they do. And they love it. DIY money takes listener questions on topics ranging from budgeting, tracking expenses, investing, retirement plans. And again, they cover making it, keeping it, growing it. And they do it also without putting you to sleep because some of those topics budgeting, I can't stand listening to, but they make it fun. So do yourself a favor Check out the DIY Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to DIY Money. Check out the DIY Money Podcast. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This guy is probably, next to Jeff Bezos, probably the world's expert on e-commerce. He started diapers.com, which was an early competitor in household goods to amazon.com, sold it to amazon.com for $550 million. Then he started jet.com, and just a few months really after he started it, sold it to Walmart for $3.3 billion, now he helps run, or he does run, Walmart's entire e-commerce operations, which is just 5% of all e-commerce. And we talked about not only his background, but what is the future of e-commerce and how could potential entrepreneurs take advantage of it in this environment? Oh, yeah, good sound. Yeah. Uh, good. <laughs> okay, great. I do everything on my phone. I actually don't use a computer, so it's always like a challenge. Well, why don't you use a computer? I put the phone in this uh, little tripod and I basically mix it up. I stand and I kind of move it everywhere. You know, sit, I, I'm outside, inside. It, it just I can just pick up the little light tripod and put it anywhere. Are you good at typing on the phone? I'm not good at typing on the phone. Yeah, I do all the typing, look at spreadsheets, look at PowerPoints, everything. I, uh, I won't use a computer. For, for Is there like a, like a health reason? Because it's like bad, <laughs> no. bad posture and all that. No, no, no. Just ease. Once you once you adapt to just phone, you don't need to carry a laptop. You don't need to, you know, worry about putting it on a table. You just I have this like little tripod like this that basically opens up and you can just put it anywhere. So it's so funny because you've you've built multi billion dollar companies uh, just using your phone. <laughs> There was, I wasn't always, it was probably the last couple of years. Uh -huh. I was like primarily phone and I still used 
laptop in certain occasions. And then at some point, a couple of years ago, I just dropped the laptop entirely. So I literally do nothing except for the extreme, like somewhere I just can't do it on the phone, like something like this. I bet but, that's a little more relaxing life. Like, uh, I kind of default to just once I'm on my desktop, I'm surfing all over the place. There's too many things that you enter into this virtual world once you have this big screen. I, I agree. So, I agree. Also, it's just not as flexible. Like when you put the phone on a stand and you stand up, you can literally stand anywhere. Yeah. Just, just go outside, inside, downstairs, upstairs. And, you know, in the office, when back in the day when we went to the office, <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't have an office, so it was easier to just carry a phone around and sit wherever rather than carry a laptop around. Yeah. So so was that you didn't have an office for at jet.com or at diapers.com? Yeah. Never? Yeah, I didn't never not at Jet or, or Walmart. At diapers.com I did. I shared one with Vinny, my co founder, yeah. we were best friends, and that was fun. But uh no, since then, no. So so basically, uh you you kinda have both a traditional path and an untraditional path. Like you did the whole banking thing for a while. And then you were like, Hey, I gotta get involved in this internet stuff, this entrepreneurship <laughs> stuff. And, and just to summarize, you started the pit, sold that to tops, the, which is, I always think of as the baseball card company, uh, but yep. I know it's much more. And, uh, then diapers.com. I remember at the time I knew someone who worked there from the beginning Actually, like if I said her name, you would know, but I completely forget her name now. Uh, okay. And and then you sold that to Amazon for five hundred eighty million, and you started Jet.com, which was like a was a potential competitor to Amazon, and you sold that for three point three billion to Walmart. Walmart has since more than doubled their e-commerce sales. You're in charge of Walmart's uh, e-commerce, and let's go from the beginning. Why were you why did you go into banking? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I didn't really have much of a choice graduating from, from college. I graduated back in 1993. Now, I had always been an entrepreneur growing up. Like in high school and grammar school, I did every entrepreneurial business that you could possibly think of as a kid from car washing, newspapers, baseball card company, uh, lemonade stand when I was a really little, to charging a nickel when I was four years old by creating these little like Casper the Friendly Ghost videos. Like it's always been in my DNA. I wanted to be a farmer um, when I was a kid because they grow stuff from nothing. That was, I had no idea that's really what entrepreneurship is, but that was like what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I was sort of born that way and loved it. But, you know, I didn't know like how to get involved in startups back in 93. It wasn't really a thing. Um, so much people, you know, went into law or banking as did many of my friends. And, uh, I always had a fascination with stocks. I started reading books on stocks and derivatives and stock options when I was in middle school and I just loved it. I thought it was like so fun. I was sort of more math than, than, uh, English. So I liked the, the math component of it. And so when I graduated, uh, uh college, I looked, you know, to go into banking because um, I wanted to, to use my knowledge of stocks and I didn't think startup was, was an option. Were, were you more into the investing side of things or were you more into kind of like um, investment banking, basically putting deals together, introducing people to each other, buying and selling companies, that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, no, it was more of the analysis side. Um, 
eventually turned into a new field um, at the time called financial risk management, where there was a new department that was analyzing the financial risks that the banks were taking, you know, in stocks and currencies and derivatives and things and assessing that risk. And that's something that I enjoyed. It was a lot of modeling and statistics. And I, I attempted to get my master's in statistics at that time. Didn't finish, but uh, well, then, was, And then look what happened a few years after you left banking, the entire financial system collapsed because they didn't model risk correctly. Yeah, no, that's, that's why it became a thing in the, in the late nineties. It was kind of a hot profession at the time. Yeah. You know, and, and I want to talk about e-commerce, where it's going, what you've done with it and, and everything. But I'm, I, I am intrigued by this concept of, of risk because I think for both investing and entrepreneurship, the main job is reducing risk. But at the same time, like you saw with in your um, investment in, in your banking career, it's like what Nassim Taleb says, it's almost impossible to truly manage risk. There's always this black swan effect and this tendency mm -hmm. to be fooled by randomness. Yeah, that's why it's really important to model scenarios. If you look at historical data and do you know, more, more basic statistical analysis, um, you're gonna be wrong going forward. And so uh, the best way to, to do it is really to, to scenario plan and think about what's possible and try and apply probabilities to those scenarios but using you know standard like standard deviation of of historical moves and things doesn't typically work well it's useless yeah because also like if people figure out a statistically significant play in the markets every a lot of people will figure it out and it'll just get arved away that's right so uh are you into poker i've I've definitely played poker. Yeah, because the scenario analysis combined with probabilities is a good. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I, w I was uh, I grew up near Atlantic City and spent some time card counting down in the casinos down there as a kid. Um, we used to sneak in in high school and and card count. That was fun. We used to like train during the summer. Um, so yeah, similar kind of thing. And and it's only still a very small edge edge when you card count, right? It's like. 51% instead of 49%. Yeah, and not even. That, that would be great. It's like 50.4, 50.5 best. Yeah. But, uh, but that's enough. If you keep playing, you're going to win. And uh, there's some fun in just knowing you have a mathematical advantage. Yeah. That was the fun as being a kid anyway. Well, it and we'll get to this, but it reminds me in some sense of how you modeled uh, the, the business model of Jet.com. But we'll get to that in a, in a, in a second. The pit. I actually didn't know about the pit before I was preparing for this. That's is was this collectible uh, like stock exchange. Exactly. It was basically uh, we use baseball cards as a proxy for the athletes, so we can create a legalized stock market, so that people were buying and selling trading cards, but they never actually took delivery. So we had you know market makers, we had a ticker tape, we had you know price graphs and things, and people can go in and buy hundred Michael Jordan rookies and hold on to in their account. And if it went up, they could sell it. And it was basically yeah, stock market for sports players, which was, you know, I did it with my two best friends at the time. And it was just sort of one of these passion plays, like so fun to, to think about, you know, being able to trade sports players like stock. And what, 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 what was the trigger? So you were a banker and then you started thinking, you know, I always really like collecting baseball cards. And then what happened? Like, was it, were you scared to leave and start the pit? Like, did you do both simultaneously? 
Yeah, no, I was making really good money. I was at the top of my profession. I was executive vice president at like 28 years old. I mean, it, my career couldn't have been going any better. And I really, you know, thought about like, is this what I want to do for the next 10, 20 years? Like, is, like I'm doing well, but is, do I do I love it? Do I have a passion for it? And this is kind of in the late 90s when tech really started to take off um, and, the, and all these tech companies and the startup idea and everything. And I basically knew that that's what I needed to do. I needed to get into the startup world that I was an entrepreneur. Were you getting anxious, like looking at all these dot coms start yeah. up and go public a few months later and people making <laughs> like a billion dollars and then disappearing and yeah, absolutely. Did you think about starting something in the late nineties? That's what I did. That's when I started the pit in the late Oh, 90s. when did you start the pit? I started the pit. I think it was 99. Yeah. And, and so then, then you're, you're building it up still and the dot-com bust happened. Two thousand. Maybe it was 2000. Sorry. It was right before the bust. It was probably six months before in 2000, the market crashed because we were trying to raise money right after the market crash. And it was like, not going to happen. But, uh, so it was right before that, but it was, it was a pretty risky move. Basically me and two friends just quit our jobs and started the business. We had, you know, no money at the time and didn't know where we we're going to get funding. And we managed to pull together, you know, about 60 angel investors to get our first $5 million. Wow. And so that uh, was possible then. Like in 1999, it was everybody wanted to get in. And, exactly. you know, they saw you having worked at a bank. So maybe this is an easy IPO or something. And so people probably were willing to just like write a check. Yeah, that's basically basically what happened. It was a bunch of 25s, 50s, and 100s that we kind of cobbled together <laughs> to raise the 5 million. It had a lot of fun doing it. And then after the market crashed, um, you know, the venture market had pretty much dried up and tops really liked what we were doing um, and liked the stock market that we created. So, so, so wait, it was like you, why would I buy like a Michael Jordan card? Was it because of how he was doing then in the sport or because, yeah. of, uh, so it was basically, well, no, well, I don't know, Michael Jordan, it wasn't, it was probably more like the, some of the hot players at the time were more like Vince Carter, who was kind of in his prime at the time, if you know Vince. Or, or Derek um, Jeter. Yeah, yeah. And so if they, and, so it wasn't based on the cards, it wasn't based on the collectibles, it was based on how they were doing as a player. So when I bet on, De when I bought a hundred Derek Jeters, it's because I thought he would do well, so people would bid him up. Exactly. But like, what were they bidding him up for? What was, like when I buy a stock, it's because- It was supply and demand. It was supply and demand. So all you had to do is have people think, you know, he's gonna have a good game and then people buy up. And then if he has a good game, they either buy more or they take their profit. Like it was, it was moving like a stock. It, it was it real money or was it more like- um, it was real money. No, real money. Wow. So, uh, yeah. uh, cause it has a kind of a, I'm just trying to figure out like how you, it has a fiat, currency sort of feel to it. Like you get the dollar because you, you, you trust that the U S government's giving it value, but it's not quite like, for instance, a prediction market, I could bet on the election. And then depending on who wins the election, I win the bet. The market goes away. Yeah. My stock, if I bet on the right person goes to a hundred percent and, and that's it. But here there's no real way to value a player. Uh, it's more like just gut. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the baseball card market, the rookie card market, you know, uh, 
was pretty well established. So it was a good foundation. But then from there, um, yeah, people just traded on, on how well the player was doing. And people would deposit, you know, $100,000 in their, in their account and buy all kinds of players and cards and things and, and then never take delivery and then sell them back. Um, so it was, uh, it was, it was fun. It, it only lasted, you know, basically a year before we sold it because, you know, the, like I said, the market had, had crashed and there wasn't any venture capital available, but. Oh, did they, did, was it a good return for you? Like, did you, did you, the top, I, rem I remember trading so, top around then it was a, or around 2002, it was like a low PE stock. I always thought it was a great, uh, little stock to buy, like a good value play. Yeah. No, this was, we raised 5 million a year later, we sold it for 5.7 million. So all the shareholders got their money back in the worst market in history. And so everybody was happy. Good. Uh, we were happy. We found a home for the pit and it was on to start thinking about the next thing. I feel like this would be a good idea now. Like what's the, what's the pit? They, do they, I doubt they ever continued it. It still exists, but it's not quite as much, there's not quite as much action as there could be. I think there's definitely a place for a sport, a true sports stock market. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of like yeah. a draft. Doesn't DraftKings do like fantasy type stuff? Like it seems like there's something you could do here relating to fantasy sports. There definitely is. And absolutely. then it reminds me of the Hollywood stock exchange as well. You remember that one? Yeah, I do. I do. I do remember that. You could bet on like, <laughs> you know, actors and actresses and movies and stuff like that. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. So what can you do now? I feel like, cause again, you, you sort of were not quite in the collectible space. It was more like prediction market slash fantasy. I feel like there's something there. I, don't know. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I got some ideas, but too many ideas and not enough time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so then you go, you went into, it's not like, this is always an interesting thing. Like obviously you were interested in, um, sports and collectibles and baseball cards you mentioned as a kid you would you would you know get, get baseball cards or trade them or whatever um so this was an interest and you combined it with what was going on in the entrepreneurial world at the time which was tech and dot com but your next play diapers.com were you it's not like you were obsessed with diapers like what what kind of mm -hmm. triggered this um Unless you were obsessed I with diapers. A, I, well, I did have a baby at the time, so I was obsessed with changing them, but that's a side point. <laughs> that really wasn't, I mean, that maybe played a small part, but but really uh, after, you know, me and my friends, Vinny and Lax, did this business, The Pit, we knew that that was something that we were really passionate about and, and loved it, but we wanted to sort of take a more analytical approach, like where is the big opportunity? And so we basically just would, would search on Google uh, keywords to see how many times they were searched. And I remember one day searching diapers and it came up and it was like 200,000 times a month it was searched on Google. And I thought, that's interesting. Can you buy diapers online? And even at the time, Amazon and others didn't have diapers priced at the same price in the store delivered to your home. It just didn't exist. You had to overpay some crazy amount. And I thought, huh, diapers are a pain. They're bulky. Nobody wants to go to the store to get them. It's a commodity item. Why don't we just sell them at you know store prices and deliver them overnight to people? And then from there, maybe we could sell them everything else for their baby. Right, because you know you know they all need diapers, right? And you know anybody who buys a diaper needs other kids' stuff. Exactly. So exactly the problem was that nobody thought people thought it was crazy because diapers are a loss leader for brick and mortar stores. 
And so if it's a loss leader for a store, it's going to be a loss leader for us. But we had to then pay for shipping. And these things were bulky and heavy, especially the wipes. And so they, the consensus was there's no way to ever make money in diapers and wipes. It's not going to work. And in fact, Procter & Gamble at the time um, refused to sell us diapers because they were so confident it wouldn't work. I mean, for like two years. And I can tell you the story about how we finally got them to sell us, but it wasn't because they believed in the business. Um, but I think people were missing the point of the power of using diapers as a way to build a relationship with moms and dads to put the company in a position to sell them everything else they need for baby where there is a lot of money to be made. So it was the the, the sort of classic lost leader strategy is taken to another level. And you think, you, you know, you, you described a couple of things. You think the idea of finding out what the best Google searches are, you think that could uh, lead to future business models? Like if someone's listening to this, how would they find out what the most searched items on Google were and how would they start researching whether there's a business there? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I don't know if today it's as easy to get that information. It was then. Uh, so I probably, you know, things have changed. I guess there are sites like Jungle Scout where you can find out what's the most popular Amazon items and there's various tools to find out what the most uh, popular items on Shopify are, but these are already being sold. I mean, Amazon basically sells everything. I think I think at the end of the at the end of the day, a lot of people had the same idea for selling, you know, diapers online. It is you know having the ability to 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 know you're going to suffer pain for a much bigger um, opportunity down the road. And so it was very painful selling every box of diapers at a loss. This was our own money. We would basically you know go to the wholesale clubs. Costco, Sam's Club, BJ's, and and buy these diapers and then sell them at a loss. That was painful. So anybody thinks it's like easy, like all like any big opportunity, you just do it, sell it, make money. It doesn't work like that. Typically, if you're going to do something big and bold and innovative, there's going to be some pain up front that you're going to have to suffer, and you have to have the the belief and and the fortitude to kind of stick with it and see the vision all the way through, which is which is what we did. But very painful. Now, did you consider trying to get the, you were buying them, yeah, right, like you said, from from Sam's, Costco, BJ's, whatever. So you were just buying them in the store wholesale because those are, are cheaper uh, venues. Were you considering maybe uh, China, like get them super cheap for pennies on the dollar? No, because we were trying to sell the most uh, popular brands, Huggies and Pampers. So those were available at the, at the clubs. That's the vast majority of the market. So there was no way to get them, get them cheaper than that. Um, but you know, people thought we were crazy. They said the investor would be like, oh, let me get this straight. So let me see if I understand this business model. Somebody buys the diapers for $35 on your site. Okay. Then you go to BJ's and you buy it for $33. And then you spend $2 to pick it, $6 to ship it. And so you're underwater on every diaper you sell. Is that is that basically, and we'd be like, that's right. And and you think that's a good business model? He said, we absolutely do. Here's why. Because once they buy those diapers, we think they're going to buy baby clothes. They're going to buy you know, accessories. They're going to buy high chairs and car seats and everything else. And there were a few investors that said, you know what? We'll take a, we'll take a, a bet that you can do that. But most said no. I mean, I would say, you know, we had a few investors, a few venture investors come in. But the vast majority said no. And you I know, think that entrepreneurs need to know that. I, yeah, I would think maybe it's just because I'm biased because now it's 
whatever, 15 years in the future. But it seems like when you, you know, you lose some amount on each diaper, but now that's your, that's essentially the cost of acquisition for a customer. So this is a concept that's regularly understood that you could, if you know the lifetime value of a customer and it's greater than the cost of acquiring that customer and your cost is basically your advertising plus your essentially what you lose on each diaper, it's not unusual to have that as a business model if you know the lifetime value of a customer is much higher. And your lifetime value, you, you build the relationship so you have them, their email so you can send them baby-related content, stories, articles, uh, discounts, coupons, you know, links to new products. And if you're the, the trusted source for where they, they're always buying their diapers, they're going to buy other stuff. It seems like that would be a no-brainer uh, to, to invest in. Yeah. Once we proved the lifetime value calculation, it got a lot easier. But imagine day one, you know, telling investors, don't worry, the lifetime value will be there. Once we get the custom, we'll be able to sell them all this other stuff that we didn't actually have for sale on the site and didn't know if they were going to sell it or, you know, buy it or not. So definitely give a lot of credit to the early investors that came in that had the, you know, saw the vision the way we did. Well, I would think, I would think the problem is in the beginning is that e-commerce then wasn't as big as the promise, right? Like now everybody buys everything online, essentially. Like look at like Walmart, what are they going to do? 30 or 40 billion, like $40 billion in e-commerce revenues this year. It's like 5% of all e-commerce revenues that you're in charge of. But back then the e-commerce concept was promising, but not who knew. So was that uh, something that was making people nervous? Like, how did you get your first customers? Did you advertise? We did, yeah. Where'd you advertise? Uh, a lot of it was Google search. We had success in, we did a deal with Parenting Magazine at the time. Oh, good. And used to take full page ads out. We did really well with that. So that worked? Like buying a magazine page worked? Yeah, worked really well. In the specialized magazine, it does. Yeah, huh. it worked really well. That was one of our better, even direct mail worked well. Um, most people these days don't really focus on their offline channels. It's mostly all digital, but the offline direct mail works really well too. What about, um, I would think direct response TV commercials, like in the middle, like 3 AM commercials. Yeah, we did a little bit of that. Uh, wasn't as successful, but I think maybe we could have been if we really focused on it. Uh huh. And so, so what was happening? So, so year one, what did you see it growing? Were you excited? Like when, when did, when was that point where, was there a point where you were like, Oh, this is such a horrible idea. Or was it like, boom, out the gates? No, it was <laughs> the first year we did, you know, two and a half million of sales. That's good. And I think we did 11 million and then maybe 35, 90. So it was sort of a little bit of a hockey stick there. Like it, it started to really get momentum um, in, in the first few years there, but it, it was still painful because we had been self-funding it. And again, you know, up, up through 11 million, the first 11 million in sales, we'd been self-funding it and it was really tough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, were you ever, was there ever a point like here you are, you have like little kids and you're, you're trying to survive. And was there ever a point you were like, Oh my God, if this continues another year like this, um, I'm out of, I'm out of it. No, we, I mean, we never really thought that we just were thinking positively. Like this is people like the service and 
we believed in the vision and we just needed to sell it to investors. And we never, we never really questioned whether we could do that. I mean, maybe that was not smart, <laughs> but I don't know. It's, it's not having a plan B, not having sort of a fallback sometimes is, is exactly what you need as an entrepreneur yeah. because once you have the fallback, it becomes easy to take it. And I always put myself in a position where there's no, there's no exit. You know, it's, it's billions of body bags. That's it. And, and, and so during this time though, were you starting to see, like, how are you measuring your own risk here? Like, were you starting to see lifetime um, value per customer go up? Like were they, was the model working? Yeah. So we were tracking cohorts, um, you know, the new people that came in and watching their repeat rate and how they came back. And we were really impressed with the cohort behavior. Like once people used it once, a large percentage of them came back and kept ordering. So we knew that we had the customer, like this was working. Like, we didn't have to spend more marketing dollars to get them to continue to buy. They were buying. And the net promoter score was in the 70s. They loved it. What so does that mean, net promoter score? Net promoter score is, is a simple question that a lot of B2C companies ask their customer, which is on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you be to refer this business to a friend? 10 being, yeah, a super super promoter and it's nine of the tens of promoters. And then if you give a zero to six, it's considered a detractor. You take the percentage of promoters and subtract the percentage of detractors. And that's your, what they call the net promoter score. And, uh, and so if you have a, a net promoter score, call it 75, it means you have, let's say 80% nines and tens and 5% zero to six. So that when you net them, you get 75. So a score in the mid seventies is incredible. I mean, to have 80% of people give you nines and tens when asked whether you'd refer this to a friend is, is very strong. So we had a great net promoter score. We had great repeat rates. Uh, customers love the site. We just had to get them to buy other stuff. And, and we started adding new categories. And little by little, um, you can start to see that people were, in fact, open to buying things other than diapers and wipes and baby formula uh, on the website. Were, were, were you getting profitable? Were you profitable in the 11 million year? Not at 35 all. million year? Not at all. <laughs> in the five hundred million dollar year. Yeah. <laughs> how many years how many years into the business was that? So let's see. Two, eleven, thirty-five, ninety, one eighty, three something. I think it was about seven years in. So at that point you were you were profitable though, the five hundred yeah, million. We we got profitable, yeah. And so, no, was there ever a point where you were able to say, okay, we're massively profitable. We're making half a billion in, in revenues. I'm going to pay myself $5 million. Well, that was the, the, the profitable was after we sold it. So we sold it when it was about 300 million in revenue. So no, at that point, were you worried that Amazon could just get into that category and crush you? Well, they did get into the category and they did get really aggressive. Um, they sold diapers for 30% off. Uh, but even with that Amazon selling diapers at 30% off, we still, it slowed our growth a little bit, but we were still growing nicely. And I think maybe that was one of the reasons why they wanted to acquire us because they realized, wow, this is a real brand. It's not just about price. Like diapers.com was, was uh, you know, just, just moms and dads loved it. And so what happened? Did they, did they call you up and say, hey, Jeff Bezos wants to meet you? <laughs> Uh, wasn't exactly like that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we just got to know the company and, and yeah, they made an offer. 
Like, did, did Jeff Bezos and you hang out and Jeff said, yeah, we want this? Uh, it, was, it was not, he didn't make the deal himself. It was one of his directs. And then, and then you did you, you obviously were an Amazon employee and. For, yeah, for two and a half years. You're, you were continuing to run diapers.com. Yeah, and, and I said diapers.com, but that was the first website. We actually launched wag.com, which was a pet site. We launched um, soap.com, which was an online drugstore. We launched uh, Yo-Yo, which was a toy site. We basically had like about eight or 10 websites in every category. They were all linked together with a, summit, uh, a common uh, shopping cart. And that the umbrella company was called Quidsy, which means what if in Latin. And we sold Quidsy to Amazon. Right, and then were you were you how were you storing things? Like, did you have a warehouse? Did you? Yeah, we had a, we had a three warehouses in East Coast, West Coast, and center of the country. We were shipping most of the country overnight via ground delivery, so it was a really good customer experience, which was which at that time wasn't that common. Like overnight delivery wasn't wasn't common even for Amazon. So Amazon, it's like they wanted you, but also you were like an expert you were like great for Amazon, just that you understood every aspect of the e-commerce business. I mean, when you went over to Amazon, did you take on more responsibilities than uh, just the, the websites that you had been managing before? No, it was different than the Walmart uh, deal. We, we basically continued to just manage Quincy. We weren't really brought into the, the mothership. And after you sold it, I mean, you sold it for 500 80 million or so, 585 million? 550, yeah. 550. And uh, did, at that point, you have enough money. Did you consider, oh, I kind of want to just quit? <laughs> <laughs> after uh, after leaving Amazon, you mean? No, after selling diapers.com. Like, here you put in all these years, and like, finally, this was the big hit. Yeah. Well, part of the deal was to stay a couple of years with Amazon, which we did. Uh-huh. But after that, I mean, one could argue, okay, you have plenty of money. You don't need to work. Why do another startup? But I felt like in some respects, I was just getting started. You know, like I had got to the entrepreneurial game sort of late relative to some of the, the kids these days that start early 20s. You know, I was, you know, approaching 30 when I did my first startup. So I felt a little late to the game. I, I felt like I had a lot of passion for, for creating something, you know, startup from scratch and learned a ton at, at the pit, learned even more at diapers and was sort of ready to do it again. Yeah. And then what did you learn at Amazon? Because I can imagine between the diapers experience and then spending two or three years at Amazon, you probably knew, you were probably like the world's expert on (laughs) (laughs) e-commerce. I don't know about that, but I, I, I definitely, you know, felt like there weren't that many people that were actually a hands-on in all the elements of e-commerce. So whether it be supply chain, merchandising, you know, even accounting, like we did everything um, ourselves. So we, we bought the product, we negotiated with the vendors, we set up the warehouses, we picked stuff in the warehouse, we shipped stuff out, we negotiated with the, the carriers, you know, we did all the marketing, the search engine stuff, the accounting, <laughs> like, you know, so we really knew every little uh, aspect of, of e-commerce and uh, having done it. I think these days, you know, people join e-commerce companies, uh, they don't really have the same opportunity because you're joining an established company and you probably work in one area, merchandising or supply chain or more, and you get to know that area pretty well. But there's something unique about, you know, having to do it all 
every aspect of a business yourself. And so when you were at Amazon, what, what changed for you? Like, did you, uh, that's why I was curious, like, did you learn additional things about e-commerce at Amazon or additional things about running a large company or what, what impressed you about Amazon? Like what, what, what did you take with you when, when you yeah, left? No, le le learned it, learned a ton there. Um, just, you know, it's sort of like you have a certain view of the world of e-commerce. You start something from scratch, you build it, you get it to a good place and you've learned all these things. And then you have this alternative world that you get to see of like another e-commerce company that did the same thing, started from scratch and built up and they use different terminology. They thought about things differently. They learned things that we hadn't learned yet. And just putting together the knowledge of, of what we had learned combined with what they had learned, you know, became a great platform to kind of go do this again. Like <laughs> what was, what was something that they learned that you hadn't yet learned? Oh, so many little things, things that probably wouldn't resonate. There was nothing like some big aha, but understanding like a deeper sense of like lifetime value and, and how they think about lifetime value and the economics of it. I'm, I'm curious about that. Like how do they view it differently? Because that's a key metric for any e-commerce company. Yeah, no, just, just using economists, you know, to, to sort of analyze. Um, it, it's really hard to understand what product drives lifetime value like for example diapers so it's easy to see how if you buy diapers you you know go ahead and sort of buy the stuff that you bought right but if i didn't have diapers for sale or, or diapers weren't priced as well and i didn't buy diapers on the site would i have got all those other sales or not right it's just trying to figure out how incremental is is having the diapers product priced at where it's priced to the overall lifetime value of a customer. And it's really using econometric models to figure that out. It's not so straightforward because you don't know what it would have been had you not had it where you had it. And so, and that goes for all the products, trying to figure out what products should be priced where to maximize lifetime value. It's, it's a really complicated and interesting calculation. So is Amazon constantly taking like, let's say small groups of customers and AB testing prices and what products you see and so on to figure out, uh, to start testing, given this product and this value, this is the lifetime value of someone who starts buying with this product. I mean, rather, rather than focus specifically on them, I can just tell you more generally. I yeah. think, I mean, what you said is true. Um, in order to, to optimize lifetime value, it really is about, you know, doing a lot of A-B testing and understanding the elasticity of, of pricing and demand. But more than that, how it correlates with the purchase of other products, which is the, that's the harder part. So like if you buy a computer, maybe you're the sort of person who buys these types of clothes, for instance, because Amazon's got so many categories. That's sort of the interesting data now. So obviously if I buy a computer, I'm going to buy maybe speakers for the computer. But it's interesting to know if I buy a computer or this type of computer, I might buy this type of clothing or these types of books or whatever. Exactly. And if you had better pricing on one, does it impact the other and the sales of the other and stuff? Yeah, it gets, it gets really complicated, as you can imagine. Well, well, well this all leads into Jet.com, which was, as far as I know, really the, the only viable competitor to Amazon, particularly in, you know, once Amazon was a fully mature company and you had very interesting pricing there. So, so 
you leave Amazon. Did you already have the idea in mind? I'm going to start Amazon, but for X. Like, what was it? What was the X? Yeah, no, I, I think um, you know, I saw, I definitely saw an angle after leaving Amazon. Took six months off and really wanted to sit back and think about what's the next big play. I, I wasn't done with retail at that point. Um, I knew, felt like I had unfinished business in, in retail and spent six months, you know, relaxing and just thinking basically. Would you, would you have ideas every day? Like what were you, what, what's the, what other stuff were you considering? It's hard to remember um, so many different ideas, literally. I mean, hundreds of things, you know, and, and different angles and different ways to play it. And a lot of them were more like specialty or carving out a niche that Amazon wasn't in. Um, and then at the end of the day, I thought, you know, there's there's really room. This market's growing. It's big. It's massive. There's room for another no, a number two player out there. And, and in order to do that, we had to go mass. We had to be everything. We had to sell everything um, to, to really compete. And we needed an angle to do it. And this idea of this uh, smart card, this idea of, uh, you know, empowering people to shop smarter, to save costs, basically, to reduce the cost of logistics and be able to give those savings back to customers in the form of lower prices was, was the concept that we landed on. Yeah. So it, it, I was talking a few months ago to Jim McKelvey from uh, Square. He's a co-founder of Square. Yeah, I yeah, know Jim. And his, his model was if you could create a business model which services the bottom third of any industry, like any population of people, then you're going to do very well. So for instance, Square allows uh, mom and pop shops that normally wouldn't be able, that weren't big enough to, to offer credit card uh, access this ability. So they're hitting like the bottom third of stores. And it seems like with Jet.com, you were hitting like the bottom third of potential e-commerce customers. You're basically giving going to be this mass e-commerce store with the absolute cheapest prices because you were selling products at cost while uh, you were selling a subscription, like a Costco type model. I don't think about it necessarily. I never really thought about it as sort of the bottom third like that, but it, it was definitely geared uh, to saving people money. So it wasn't, you know, the, 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 the super sort of premium shoppers. We, we didn't have, you know, Gucci and brands like that on the website. It was saving people money on, on, on everyday essentials and, and things like you know food and diapers and stuff like that, um, as as well as everything else. But it, it wasn't uh, a premium site necessarily. So okay, so what what happened? So you, how long did it take you to build it? Like what was what were the problems along the way? Yeah, so it took about let's see a year to launch it from when, when we kind of started in earnest um, and. After the first 10 months, we were at about a billion in sales. So just very different approach than diapers.com where it took seven years to get to a half a billion. This was like a billion in the first year. Um, Why is that? We had a lot more capital. So diapers.com, you know, we sold for, you said, 550 million. We only raised 50 million. Um, and at jet.com, we raised 55 million with just a business plan to, to start it. And by the time it was all said and done, we raised about 800 million. Wow. So, yeah, so, so basically the first 10 months, we got to a billion sales. Most of that money was spent on, on marketing and, and sort of the infrastructure. And then we sold it, you know, within the next, uh, I guess, six months or so after that. So the start to finish, it was a little over two years, I guess. 
I would think I would think Jet.com would be harder to raise money for than Diapers.com because at least when when you walk in to to a VC, you're going to say, "Yeah, we're going to basically create an online store that sells everything," and they're going to say, "Well, isn't doesn't that already exist? Don't don't you already work there?" Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would I would not disagree with you. I think if Diapers.com had been later, you know, it wasn't you know as early in the days of the internet. It had been later where companies were raising a lot more money more easily. I think we would have been able to raise a lot of money and, and create quite a substantial business back then. But it wasn't it wasn't easy to raise, you know, 50 or 100 million like it is today. It was a totally different world back in, you know, call it 2008, 2009. It was just very different. Today, it's it's quite common for tech companies to raise 50 or 100 million or hundreds of millions. But but jet.com though, that seems like it would be hard to raise for just because your Amazon's your competitor. And that's that's a hard competitor to have. It is, but I think the idea was that the market is massive. There's room for another player, and we had a an interesting angle uh, in terms of the business model. Right, like Amazon wasn't going to compete with that. Yeah, it was just it just we, we spent marketing dollars and we were able to get customers and grow the business. You know, Amazon's a very trusted site, right? Yeah. So you had to convince them, hey, stop doing your normal behavior. We're going to actually change behavior here. You're going to, instead of going to Amazon as your instinctual place to purchase things, we want you to start going to jet.com. Yeah, we didn't look at it that way because the market's so big and growing so fast. We didn't have to take business necessarily away from Amazon, certainly not in the early days. There was billions of of dollars up for grabs, even tens of billions up for grabs. Uh, So so that's what we did. And we spent a lot of money. Uh, We did TV. We did... uh, course all the traditional digital marketing but we did spend quite a bit on tv and uh that definitely helped what were your biggest sellers i don't know specific items but definitely you know everyday essentials were were a big category so all the things all the consumable type products you also had this interesting pricing model where if people bought items that were all in the same warehouse near them, you would be able to offer discounts on other items in the same warehouse. Exactly. How did, how did that work? You were obviously doing pricing on the fly and then uh, that, that, that seems to me very innovative in the business model as opposed to, you know, it wasn't just like, hey, get everything it costs and there's, you make money on the subscription. You had this innovative pricing model to, because you knew you were going to cut costs on shipping. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the marginal cost to ship something, if you have a box of products coming from a single warehouse and you were, and, and let's say that box to be shipped out was going to cost you $7 and you said, wait, there's another product in the warehouse that weighs two pounds. If we add that to the box, how much is that going to cost to ship? And it adds 10 cents. It's like, oh, that's interesting. That only adds 10 cents to ship. But if it shipped from another warehouse, it'd be another six, $7. So the idea was to try and expose that to the customers to say, hey, you built this basket of stuff. You're shipped out of this warehouse. Before you check out, there are a lot of items here that we can give you a discount on because we know the shipping's only ten cents. If you want to buy something that's not in that warehouse, it's somewhere else. We can't help you. That's like inefficient. So the idea was to try and educate consumers on on how to shop in a more efficient way, so that the overall cost of delivering product goes down, and then we share it with customers. That was the idea. 
And so right from the beginning, did you see like this enormous spike every day in revenues? Was like just things going up and up and up? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> to, to get to a billion in 10 months, it's pretty, that's pretty much the way it goes. And I never experienced anything like that. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Were you ever worried? So it sounds like you were never really worried in this business, whether it would do well or not, because it was just exploding in sales. Like at the very least, you knew you'd be able to sell this at some point. Yeah, we didn't have time to even think about that. Honestly, it was trying to keep the wheels on the on, on the bus or the wings on the plane. <laughs> so it was flying. It was pretty intense to get to that level of sales and to have that kind of infrastructure built so quickly. Um, but we we had hired great people. I think at the end of the day, the lesson here is, you know, we just hired just phenomenally talented people, and we empowered them and let them run. Created created a culture that inspired them and hired great people and let, let them do their thing. So, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, ultimately that's what it's all about. It's the people. So you can have the best idea, but if you don't have the right people, forget it. And so you weren't as, it sounds like you weren't as hands on with every aspect of the business, like you were with diapers.com for instance. Not at all. No, but hired people that were, but yeah, I, I personally wasn't at all. I was spend at least half my time just raising money because it was so short period of time. You know, in an environment like that where you're losing money on a lot of these transactions, I think there was one article about you guys where they bought $500 worth of goods or $200 worth of goods and they figured you lost an additional $200 on that transaction. So you're losing money on, on several transactions and investors know this. So did, did you ever, was there ever an opportunity for them to kind of, um, sense that you're about to run out of money and they could hold this over you and do a good deal for themselves? Or, or you, you always tried to yeah. create an auction environment for investors? You just have to have enough investors. So there were definitely investors that played that game and they missed out because we had other investors. But that's always a, a risky strategy on both sides. It's important to get knowledge about money. You, you're not just going to learn it from experience because that's the fastest way to learn money. And I, I used to think it was hard to learn lessons about the market because the internet is so saturated with advice. So it took me a long time to find the resources that I use. I've been using for 20 years for my own self to learn about money, investing. But I do want to say, you know, there's this one podcast that stands out for me that I recently discovered, and it's easy to tap into just about any money subject you want to listen to and get honest, trustworthy advice to get you in the right direction for your finances, your family's wellness, your future, or even your present. Because quite frankly, all the time, it's good to have more money than less money. So the podcast is called DIY Money, DIY as in do it yourself. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have your phone by you, you could check it out. You can subscribe right now. They've got some great episodes. The most recent episode that I'm looking at is how to deal with finances during this COVID-19 crisis. And if you start listening now, imagine you know, you're, you're going to get a better relationship with money. Knowledge is power. And this podcast at 20 minutes an episode is just a fast way to learn about all the different aspects of money, whether it's about investing, retirement, budgeting, taxes, whatever. The hosts, Daniel and Quint, they just take a fun and entertaining and playful approach to this stuff, to money, to finance. They know what they're talking about. I've, I've known Quint for a decade and I trust him and I trust his financial advice. 
DIY Money takes listener questions on topics from budgeting to tracking expenses to investing to retirement plans, and they do it, importantly, without putting you to sleep. So do yourself a favor. Check out the DIY Money podcast wherever you get your podcast. This is more important than ever now that we're in this kind of crisis because of the coronavirus. Stay up to date with good, talented, smart people. Podcasts like this are the best resource for financial information. DIY Money. So e-commerce, what the hell is going on these days? Is e-commerce going to dominate the, you know, the trend has always been Amazon is, is versus the mom and pop stores. And now that we've become as a lifestyle addicted to Amazon or Walmart.com or any of these big e-commerce players, what's, what's going to happen societally as this, as this evolves? I mean, I think you're seeing it happen now. We've pulled forward probably three years of e-commerce growth uh, due to COVID. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think, I mean, it's happening faster, but I don't think um, it changes where we were expected to go even before COVID. That's a good point. Like, would you say COVID was an accelerator, but not necessarily uh, a transformer? It wasn't like, it wasn't exactly. like anything's new. It's just accelerating trends that were happening. Yeah, and I think everyone was prepared for some point in time where more than 50% of the sales would be done online. So, you know, I don't think anything changed there. It's not like now we think it's going to be 60 or 70%, you know, it's just, it's just we're just getting there faster. I mean, one trend that we've seen in e-commerce the past few years is the rise of other trusted commerce sites like Shopify stores, for instance. So people are happy to go to a Shopify store. It used to be people were only happy going to, let's say, walmart.com or Amazon, and they trusted those sites, even if the prices were a little higher. But now there's Shopify, there's Etsy, there's a lot of players in the space that aren't declining. Do you think Amazon and Walmart or Walmart increase market share, or does it just does the pie just get bigger for everyone who's in the e-commerce space? I mean, the pie is definitely getting bigger, but but both Amazon and Walmart are growing faster than the market. There's going to be winners and losers. There's those that are growing faster than the market and those that are growing slower than the market. And I think we're at a point in time now and help by COVID to sort of flush out the winners from the losers. And, and what, where, does it, where does it all play out? Like what's the next technological or, or lifestyle change that happens as the result of this? Like, for instance, will I just start subscribing to everything in my life? Like, oh, every three years, I subscri I, I'm in a subscription, Amazon Smart Home. So every three years, I get all new home furnishings. No, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. But I do think it's, heading, it's headed toward, uh, you know, like, for example, Walmart keeping you in stock in your refrigerator and your cupboards. So you go to work, you come back home, and your fridge is stocked. Your cupboards yeah. are stocked. Uh, we're doing that in some test markets now and people love it. So I do think, uh, and right now people are ordering it and we're just putting it in their fridge when they're at work um, or out of the house. But I think in the future, it'll get to the point where you don't even have to order it. We'll know better than you because there'll be a camera in the refrigerator. Refrigerator will be smart. It'll know um, the things that you're, you're low on and we'll know from previous purchase habits the kind of stuff you want to stay in stock on. So... I think the other big thing I would say is conversational commerce. I think with you know deep learning becoming more of a thing every day, the idea of being able to use voice or text 
to be able to have a conversation about what you might want instead of having to search. So instead of typing toaster in the search engine and having to weed through yourself all the toaster that makes sense, you could just simply have a conversation as if you would be talking to a toaster expert, all computer driven. Alexa will be like you say to Alexa or Walmart, does, does Walmart have a, their own version of Alexa or, or a smart home type of thing? It's not Alexa, so it doesn't, it's not sort of doing weather and all these other music and things like that. But in terms of shopping, yeah, we're, we had Jet Black where people were, were using voice and text. And we're now in the process of rolling that into you know, the, the Walmart stores. So people will say, oh, hey, um, you know, to their Walmart device or Amazon device or whatever, they'll say, hey, I want a toaster. And, and Walmart will say, well, the most popular toaster in you know, this price range is this. It's got 5,000 good reviews. It's got four slices. Do you want it? And you say, yeah. And then it'll just deliver it. Yeah, even better than that, it'll know you specifically. It'll know you as well as you know, a family member. And it'll be smart enough to be as knowledgeable about toasters as any person you, you would ever possibly be able to talk to. So it's a combination of the two. It, is, it, it needs to be personalized in that way. It knows sort of the, the types of price points, the types of brands, whether you like, you know, value brands, mid-range brands, premium brands, uh, where you find value in terms of pricing based on things you've bought before, the color of your kitchen to match the toaster color. Like you have a family, you probably need a bigger toaster. Like it, it would just kind of know things. So when it makes the recommendation, it would be more coming at it like an assistant would or a concierge service would. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, the funny thing is it's not like any of this is rocket science. Like the idea of the refrigerator you described earlier, that's kind of been almost bandied around for 20 years, but now it, all the pieces are really in place to have commerce, fast delivery, um, sensing of what goods are in the refrigerator. And this, this type of commerce, this e-commerce or automated commerce, it, it seems like that could be in a variety of areas. Like let's say I have socks, but I happen to make a hundred thousand steps in these socks. Maybe it says, oh, now you, or maybe it just automatically orders. Now you need, you've been worn these socks for a hundred thousand steps. Now you need new socks. <laughs> or it could be a variety of areas where, yeah. um, you know, like, oh, you've shaved, you know, 50 times, here's a new razor blade or uh, all, all these, all these categories. You could just basically put someone to work in each of these categories and a test project could be find some people who would be willing to just go along with everything and see if their lives are better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what, what other kinds of um, innovations in commerce do you think there will be? Like, what about, what about drone delivery? Absolutely. That's coming. And already already running some tests now. So so yeah, drone delivery is coming. Um, I think, you know, for light packages where the requirement is is speed, it works really well. So I think there's a use case for, for drones. I think there's a use case for autonomous vehicles. Drones and autonomous vehicles are going to be make up a large part of, of how goods are delivered in the future. Another area is augmented reality. Right, so you're walking by something and you might see coupons specifically related to your profile. So if, if you and I were walking by a Walmart, I might see in front of me some coupons saying, hey, if you go in this Walmart in the next 15 minutes, here's what you might see and you'll see something completely different. That's right, from a marketing standpoint. Then there's you walk into the store and you say, uh, you know, 
uh, where are the Cheerios? And on the floor is lit up arrows that point exactly to how you get there. Um, and then when you get to the Cheerios, you say nutrition. And there you can see the nutrition information. Um, you walk down to the sporting good aisle and you look at the tents and you say, hey, can I see how this tent's set up? And the tent comes out of the box and gets set up right there in front of you in the aisle. So you can see it. You can even go inside it if you want. Um, you can play games if, if your kids are, are there with you and, and want to play games. You can do that while you're shopping. Um, the idea is to, is to bring to life the store in a way that's not possible um, without adding you know, virtual elements to it. And I, in general, think this is a great thing. Like I'm always in favor of convenience in every aspect of my life. But is any, does any part of this, like you could think of all these philosophical negatives, like where, where do the mom and pop stores belong in this? Where do the delivery people deliver? Uh, uh, where are they in this if there's drones delivering? You know, kind of an Andrew Yang sort of, you know, how do you retrain people for, for new industries? Uh, are there privacy issues? I, I, I really think none of these issues really matter that much. I think the overwhelming majority just want convenience like me. But does, is there any issues that are discussed at the highest levels? I mean, um, workforce for the future is, is, is definitely something that, that we discuss. And, you know, if you just look back through history, though, there's always been new opportunities for, for human capital, for human labor created with advancements in technology. And so, I mean, you know, think about all the, all the people that are, that are you know, driving at Uber and Postmates and Lyft and all these guys. I mean... That was all enabled by technology. Uh, right. Those jobs didn't exist before. I mean, just one example, but it, it, it happens, and you could point to, to any point in history where there have been massive advancements in technology. There's not been a, a massive rise in unemployment. It's been just the opposite. Yeah, and it, I mean, I guess, I guess Andrew Yang in his book, uh, The War Against uh, Normal People, I think is the title, uh, he argues that this time it is in fact different because entire it's like when we switch from horses to cars it's like okay the people who worked on horses worked on cars but now if we're switching to automated delivery there's no other industry that truck drivers for instance can just simply jump to now even if there is you could think of something it's there still might be a, a chance where there's not a clean overlap like in other in other times yeah i mean it's a hard argument to take the other side of, but I, I do think, like I said before, that lots of new jobs and sectors will open up as technology advancements get get put into action, including drones, including autonomous vehicles. Yeah, and we just don't know exactly. This is not clear exactly how or where that will show up. Right. I think part of this is learning to to live with uncertainty, and there might create entrepreneurial opportunities. So like, let's say someone, like for example, let me just give you an example, yeah. just like autonomous vehicles, you, you assume, okay, with the vehicle is autonomous, that obviates the need to have a person drive the car. But what if the fact that you have an autonomous vehicle makes the economics of a chef being able to cook on the vehicle and cook meals for people economical now where it wasn't before, because before you had a driver and a chef and it was just too expensive. Now it's autonomous. Now suddenly it makes sense because the chef's got to cook anyway, and there's no cost of driving. So why can't the the chef just cook on the road? 
Like that's just like just thinking about how how the advancement you'd assume the job goes away, but it creates a new job because there's now a lower cost to deliver cooked food to someone's home. You know what I mean? Like it's just an example, but but I, I think that's it's hard to see all those things. Yeah, no, here here's a, a another possibility just thinking about it is that presumably if you're not limited by the number of skilled truck drivers you have, you can have more trucks on the road and more goods being delivered and you still need the final mile to have a driver because cities are not self-driving and or auto driving in cities is not the same as on highways, so you might need more drivers delivering the final mile. So that might be another another thing. But let, let, let's say someone's entrepreneurial and they're listening to this and they're thinking, okay, the world's going to be different in terms of e-commerce. And what, what opportunities do you see for entrepreneurs potentially here? Like beginning ones, advanced ones, well-funded ones, ones with starting from scratch. Entrepreneurs, just generally speaking, you mean like yeah. what industry sectors are, are interesting? Yeah, or you know, in e-commerce specifically, but if there are others that are become interesting because of these changes, that, that I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I said some all the things that I talked about. I think that's where the puck's going. I think utilizing you know augmented reality. I think virtual reality too. We didn't talk about that, but that's a little bit further out. But being able to um, put on a, a, a VR headset in your home and be transported to the most idyllic sort of shopping experience you've ever you've ever seen before with 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 music and 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 you know the way the stuff's laid out is 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 perfect and you know what i mean like you can you can create some really cool um some really cool experiences and make it make it really fun Uh, i think vr but that's a little bit further out i think augmented reality i think utilizing computer vision to be able to like pick stuff off the shelf and, and walk out without having a, to go through a checkout, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that stuff is still, still room and opportunity there. All the autonomous stuff we talked about, conversational commerce, um, uh, still, still so many opportunities. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I was thinking of or, or looking into was live commerce. So, you, you know, there's QVC and home shopping channels and all those things, but you don't really see that happen on YouTube. Imagine if, People set up YouTube channels where live they were pitching products, and you know they got popular for whatever reasons. And you know that could be an interesting. I love it. For- I love it. There's a there's a I forget the name of the site in China that does that. It's really popular. I think I think there's definitely something that's like confusing social commerce, um, you know, uh, or even just straight straight video, like you said. I think it's interesting. Um, I think interactive video uh, is another area to, to really, you know, merchandising products in new ways uh, online. What, what would interactive video look like? And there's this company, Echo, uh, Yoni Block, that uh, Walmart invested in. That's it's kind of fascinating. It's a, uh, almost, almost like a choose-your-own-adventure shopping. So you basically, you know, Sofia Vergara, is, is there and says, hey, you know, want to try try my jeans? And then you're like, yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, uh, how tall are you? And I'll get, and he asks some questions and things. And then you see the jeans show up, you know, uh, on Sophia or another actor. Um, and you can, and it happens in real time. And you can like say, okay, we need a, we need a top to go with those jeans. And then what do you like? And then you can see the top go on, 
on the person so you can see the genes with the top yeah everything's like interactive you know you, you can you can see it happening in real time the video is changing to adapt to the things that that you've told it now i wonder if there's also opportunities for places like Amazon or Walmart, since they deal with so many aspects of our lives, not just in terms of commerce, but in terms of finance, I wonder if there's opportunities for the Walmarts and Amazons of the world to become like banks almost. So you're already handling pay, right? There's Amazon pay, Google pay, Facebook pay. Uh, you know, a lot of the country, and I'm thinking in terms of your experience with jet.com where you're kind of hitting you know, lower price goods and a, a slightly different demographic than Amazon. A lot of the country or 20% of the country is unbanked. And I mm-hmm. wonder if there's a way to kind of handle their their banking needs or their cheap medical needs. So, you know, I can go to Walmart right now, for instance, and get my eyes checked without, to, you know, without insurance, without it being expensive and so on. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a big opportunity. We have, a, we have quite a, a big financial services business at Walmart now. And there's certainly opportunities, like you said, to uh, do more for the unbanked, to be able to you know, move money and, and keep a bank balance and be able to pay with it and do other things. Yeah, I mean, there's so many opportunities in financial services as there are in, in, in health and wellness as well. That's another hot area. So you, I, I, I see you've been doing um, this series on LinkedIn, you know, um, the, the uh, startup stand-up series, right, where you're interviewing different entrepreneurs, different um, female entrepreneurs. What are you, Some let's say right now, more than ever, people realize their jobs weren't as loyal or safe as they thought they were. And so a lot of people come, say, oh, I'm just not an entrepreneur. What's, what's your answer to that? Do you think anybody could be an entrepreneur? Everybody should be one? What's, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, I, I would have probably answered that differently in the past, but I do think uh, there are certain traits that are sort of required to be an entrepreneur, uh, that not everyone, you know, possesses those traits. I think first and foremost, you have to be willing and comfortable with taking risk. I don't know any successful entrepreneur that you talk to that doesn't have multiple stories of having to take risk. And you know, even risk of leaving your job and doing something on your own, it's scary and, and there's risk involved. And I don't mean taking some crazy risk, you know, where it's a life or death situation, but but someone needs to be comfortable with the idea of this may not work out. It's got a low probability of success. Some people just, they want to be in more control. You know, they want, they want to know that I've got a 90% chance of this working. And if you're doing a, a startup that has potential, it's not going to be 90% because if it was 90%, it'd already be done. Right. It's by definition, it's going to be probably 30 or less. You know, um, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, the businesses I've done and friends have done and things. And I can't tell you how often when a good idea that ultimately worked was first shared, most people, the vast majority of people, when told the idea, say, yeah, I just, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. To be an entrepreneur, you have to see things that other people don't see. And the fact that people say, I don't see it should not be deterrent. You know, in fact, it's a requirement. So you're saying entrepreneurship, they can't expect 
in terms of taking risks, they can't expect to do something and a 90% chance it's going to work. It's at best 30% chance. How do you go forward knowing you have those kind of odds? You could waste significant amounts of time, money, energy. Like, how do you start to mitigate the risk at some point? You know, that, that's the thing. There, if you start to mitigate the risk, you're going to wind up changing the vision and increasing the probability of success. That's not, that's not the game of entrepreneurship. The game is to basically look for opportunities where the outcome is so large that 30% probability of success is just fine. I'm just curious. Everything that you do on a day-to-day basis, uh, you were to stop tomorrow, you did absolutely nothing, and you knew there was a kind of one in three chance of success and in the one in three chance, you created something magical for customers and you made yourself $50 million over the next five years. Let's just say kind of something like that. And you're one in three shot. Would you roll the die? I feel like I would, but only if I further, if I really felt this is something that is going to be great for customers, if I really felt it in my bones. Yeah, you feel it. I would mitigate the risk by by validating the idea with potential customers, with testing it in different ways, with experimenting. By the way, I was assuming that with all the experimenting, testing, all that, you got to 30. So okay, yeah. You, I'm going to give you the benefit of that. You just, you, you're just not going to, I'm telling you, having done, you know, five startups before in the past, you know, every one of them was a low probability of success and there's nothing you're going to do about it. Like if, if it was, if it had a high probability of success, it would have already been done. Like somebody would have done it. And um, it's, it's, it becomes a defensible moat as well because it has a low probability of success. It does keep away investors. It keeps away competitors and, and it certainly keeps away big companies from doing it. Big companies do not like 30% chance of success because as an individual in a corporation, think about it. You, it's all about your career and, and your career trajectory. Um, you may come up with the best 30% shot out there. And if it works, it's going to make the company a thousand X. But you're staring at the, in the face of like, there's a 70% chance here. I, I have to like explain to my boss why I, I did this, you know, really seemingly dumb idea that didn't work. It caused the company a lot of money. I don't know if that's good odds if you're thinking about like your career because you don't get the upside of the thousand X. If you right. if you got the upside of the thousand X, yeah, take the thirty percent. But if your upside is, I'll get promoted next year, but I was going to get promoted anyway even without this idea. And the downside is, it looks like you made a really big blunder. Big companies don't typically have individuals in the company whose risk appetite aligns to what you know. The company's in the best place of anywhere to take lots of these 30% shots. Think about it. If you had a, a, a big company and they were taking hundreds of these 30% shots and each one of them had a big outcome, that portfolio is going to look really good over time. But the right. problem is there's no, for any one individual, the risk profile doesn't look right because you don't get the benefit of diversification. Still, I wonder like, if I am being entrepreneurial I wonder if I would try to put like a bunch of irons in the fire and I know that would dilute the focus, but that's one way to mitigate risk while still trying many of these 30 shot, 30% shots. 
Now, uh, here's the thing. If you, if you want to trade multiple 30% shots, they all go to 10. So now you yeah. got to do three just to get back to where you were. I, I, I think the, the, what you're, you're on to something, though. I think it is that you go and drive as hard and fast as you can at, with that 30% probability, and in two or three years, you're going to flush it out. And if, it's, if you got unlucky and, and it's the 70%, Listen, you're three years older, but that's it. You can do it again, and you and you yeah. can do it again after that. So I, you know, the first two startups I did, even though they weren't disasters, not something you can live off. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was the thirty percent. It was it was in the seventy. Meaning meaning they didn't work out the way I did envisioned they would work out. It turned out okay. Nobody lost money, which is which is which is great. But it was in the seventy percent. Diapers and jet. Back to back, I got the 30. So it was like, it was like, you know, no, no, yes, yes. You know, the next one we'll see. I mean, it's, it's got to be that way. So what are, you, what are you advising like the people in your startup stand-up series on LinkedIn? So you're interviewing these women entrepreneurs. What's kind of the common theme that you see that they're, it's almost like a blind spot they're missing because they haven't done being an entrepreneur before? No, I think every business is different. Some of them have, you know, good, good business and, and looking to raise money and are challenged with, you know, how to do that. Um, some might be um, questions around focus. I, I find that to be the case a lot is that um, people get attracted to the shiny object. You're sort of like, you, you kind of have this idea and you're kind of working toward it. And it could be, uh, you could be in a local area and you start seeing competition pop up in other places and you're inclined to want to like go to those cities before you've proven the city you're in, or you want to go international before you've proven in the United States or, and, or, or you want a, a line extension before you've proven the, the, the line that you have. Uh, I see that to be one of the most common, you know, I would call it like, missteps of, of startups because capital scarce and anytime you try and uh, expand like that, you, you're going to need a lot more capital and it'll be harder to prove the unit economics. It's, I would say, you know, prove the unit economics in, in a small test case as you can, where it's a big enough to be believable. And then once you prove that, you can go and raise a ton of money. But a lot of people, before they actually prove it in the local place, they move to other places and just compound the problem because now they need more capital and they don't have enough capital to prove the economics in all the places they decided to go. That's probably at the highest level, the, the most common thing that I see. And, and this is related to the concept of, and, and you've written recently about this innovation. So like what, you know, what constitutes, what, how does one play in the innovation space so that you can give yourself the best odds of coming up with a good, unique idea? Okay. I, first of all, I, I really don't think it's about the idea. I mean, I think the, the, it's important. It depends on how big, how big you want it to be. So, this, so, I, so it depends. If, if you are happy you know, creating a, a business that you expect to generate cash from and, and sort of live, live off in the future, Maybe you can create a business that throws off a million or $2 of cash a year. And some people would say, wow, 
yeah, tell me, tell me that. Like, I, I want that. That sounds amazing, you know? Um, then, then you can go and find those sort of niches, those, those, those parts of, uh, of the business world that big companies look at and think is too small to, to really matter. And there's lots of opportunities, niche opportunities like that. If you're saying, no, no, that's not what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to create a, a billion-dollar company. You know, I, I'm looking for the unicorn. Then a lot of it comes down to, to being in the right market, being in a market that is, is big enough where you don't have to be the, the winner and you can still create a, a billion or multi-billion dollar company. Um, and, and at that point, uh, if you're in the right size market, it comes down to, you know, finding a hook, finding something that's, that's a little bit differentiated for the customer, but nothing crazy. Not, it doesn't have to be a crazy idea, just a, something differentiated. And it's about execution. And it's, it's, it's VCP. I call it VCP. It's vision, capital, people. That's what you need. You need to have the vision, make, it, make sure it's clear in your head, and then you need to raise the capital. So you got to be able to do that and go to sell it and then hire great people, build a culture, you know, that foundational, uh, you know, set of core values and go out and, and hire and, 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 and keep motivated great people. And most of the, the time it comes down to execution and, and VCP. Like if you just look at, there's a lot of people attacking the same business, the same sector of the market. and there's winners and losers. And if you look at the winners, they got VCP right. So like in terms of, in terms of the vision, uh, like where would you look right now? Where do you see kind of like the bubbling up trends that, that would excite you if you were 25 years old, 30 years old? It depends. Like, like I was saying, you know, before that to go after the, the multi-billion dollar opportunity, um, big market will require a lot of capital. It's probably harder as your first startup to get access to that amount of capital and you'll be competing with second and third time entrepreneurs. If you, if you are, so if you're, if you've already had some entrepreneurial experience and think you have access to capital, then yeah, there's a lot of big markets to go after education, healthcare, food, commerce. There, there's lots of areas. Um, if you're a first time entrepreneur and it's unlikely that you're going to get access to more than, you know, a million dollars to get started, 500,000 to get started, you're probably more in the camp of finding a smaller niche business that um, you can prove that you can take investor capital, invest it wisely, and create asset value that exceeds what would be a, a good return on, on that capital. Give it back to the investors, show them you started it, we're a good steward of capital, and sold it, exit it, now you're in a position to do, do the big one. So I just, I wouldn't recommend, you know, as a first time somebody in the mid twenties to jump right into the multi-billion dollar. I mean, it's, it's been done and some people have done it, but you're not talking 30% at that point. <laughs> you're talking 5%, 2%, 3%. And then yeah, if enough people do it, somebody's going to hit it. But I, I wouldn't want to see <laughs> the, the, the real odds of, of, you know, first time entrepreneur, you know, out of the gate going for a, a, a multi-billion dollar exit, you know, with a few years of work experience. That's not, again, but hey, like who am I? I mean, sometimes, you know, even, even, even a few percent, I mean, not, not a bad way to spend your mid-20s. 
<laughs> yeah. With a few percent shot of a home run, right? So maybe maybe I take that back. Maybe maybe if you've got the risk appetite for it and you're okay to spend three years of your life, you know, just killing yourself, have it not work, and then get the next idea and go right back at it again. I guess that could work. I guess you can you can take a lot of shots if you start in your mid twenties. What what do you think is next for you? Fi- this final question: What do you think is next for you as, as you kind of continue your journey? I mean, listen, I'm still at Walmart. I've been I've been there four years now. Uh, it's been a great journey, uh, having a lot of fun. I think we're doing great stuff with customer, or innovating and stuff. You know, I'm not going to do it forever, but uh, but right now I'm having fun. I, I originally, you know, people know I, I signed up to five years, um, so at the very least I'll be there another year. But after that. It will really depend on how, how things are going and if I have any, any big ideas, you know. It's, it's, uh, but I'm, I'm happy there at Walmart, and, and you know, I could see being there longer than five years, and I could not. It really depends on, on, on lots of factors. <laughs> well, Mark Lohr, you've been on the frontier of e-commerce practically for the past 20 years or 15 years, and uh, you're also – uh, I have great columns on LinkedIn, particularly your, and, and in addition to your startup stand-up uh, uh, interviews you're doing with entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, you've given a lot of insights into entrepreneurship, e-commerce, the future of e-commerce. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, sorry we had some technical difficulties, but uh, this is great, and I, I learned a lot. Thanks, James. I did too. Great questions. Yeah, thank you. Take care. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.